Today we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2. As usual, we will start off with the proverb of the day, uh, and the proverb of the day is going to be Proverbs 3 and two verses, uh, verses 5 and 6. Now, most Christians have this proverb. It's uh, one of the more popular ones memorized. As, as I do, it's trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways and he will direct your paths. And we can say it, but it's not really until we meditate on it do we really understand the full depth of that proverb. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. The Hebrew word indicates the heart it is a picture of the intellect, the will and the emotions. So everything that is you, the essence of you, your being, you're trusting in the Lord. Now, we can say that we trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and give a cavalier, maybe flippant response to that. Sure, I do. I'm a Christian. But oftentimes and sometimes our actions don't show that we trust. We say that we trust, but we do things that show that we really don't trust. Lean not on your own understanding. Um, your understanding, God's understanding. My understanding, God's understanding is different. And that's why we have to have the mind of Christ, because the more we meditate on God's word, the more we pray, the more we get close to him, we understand what his will is. But sometimes his understanding and our understanding are going to be different. And that's going to be very interesting, because the, the next line says, acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will direct your paths. Now, here's where we make the leap from the heart to the actions, okay? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Understand him. Now acknowledge him in all your ways. So this is where you put feet on your faith, so to speak. This is where your outward actions show that person trusts the Lord. Or, you know what, that person says he trusts the Lord, but everything he does indicates that he doesn't. So acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will direct your paths. What does that mean? That means, well, if you follow the prosperity gospel, that means if I follow a formula, I'm going to be rich. I just have to think about that mansion, and it's going to be mine. It's not what he's talking about. That's not even scriptural. He will direct our paths. In other words, are we saying to the Lord, I want you to be sovereign over my life. I know I have free will. You know, I say this often. You know, Lord, you gave me free will. I'd like to give it back to you. <laughs> I would just prefer, seriously, I would just prefer to do it your way. And why do I keep doing stupid things and messing up what you have for me? So we, at the end of the day, at the end of the verse, the last verse, he will direct our paths. We want to be following in the footsteps that he wants us to be following in. Okay, that's the goal. And we saw that in the Apostle Paul's life, certainly. So, going to Colossians. Colossians 1 gave us a well-rounded study of the deity of Christ. And today we're going to start Colossians 2, where the Apostle Paul builds the foundation on the cornerstone, which is Christ. Verse 1 in chapter 2, Paul says this, For I want you to know what a great conflict or struggle I have for you and those in Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Another one of Paul's masterpiece run on sentences. So we're going to try to break that down for you. Uh, verse 1. 
See, Paul's struggle and desires for both the Colossians and the Laodicean churches. Two things here. Paul, obviously, he's roughly 900 miles straight run away from him in a Roman prison versus being in Colossae. Okay, so he's not with them, but he will find that he is with them in spirit. His prayers and his desires for them are the following. Number one, for their hearts to be encouraged. All of us need to be to have our hearts encouraged. It's a picture of, you look at the word in a dictionary, to, to, to have courage, to be strengthened of heart, to be lifted up. I was recently able to sit with a, an elderly sister in the Lord who was a victim of a, of a scam, and she was distraught about the things that were happening to her. And I just sat with her, and I held her hand, and we spoke, and we talked. And after about an hour goes by, she felt totally comforted. Now, I didn't change her circumstances, I wasn't able to catch the bad guys right away, okay? However, I encouraged her. Now, see, I need that too. You need that. You need that. We all need to be encouraged, okay? To, 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 you know, Jesus said that a lot. He said, take courage. He spoke that word a lot. He was trying to encourage their hearts. First step. Second step, to be knit together and loved. In love. That's why we're called the body of Christ. The body of Christ. Everybody here collectively... In addition to other churches, we all comprise the body of Christ, and Christ is the head. Colossians is all about Christ being the head. So we're knit together in love. Let me give you an example. Let's take it to the other extreme of a dysfunctional body. If I was up here speaking to you and all of a sudden my finger fell off, I would do this so it wouldn't distract you, and then my ankle falls off. Now I'm kind of limping along and I've got to hide behind the pulpit, and my parts started falling off. I would have a dysfunctional body, wouldn't I? As a matter of fact, I saw a bumper sticker on an old beat-up uh, truck that said, Honk if parts fall off. <laughs> you know, it's pretty humorous. But certainly, we don't want that to happen to us now, do we? That's, that's a mess. It's kind of be pretty frightening. Dysfunctional. By the same token, the body of Christ or the church is dysfunctional if it's not to get lit, knit together in love. I've heard the church, the um, phrase, Sunday church. And to me, that's not a good picture of church if we have the attitude of we're doing the Sunday church thing. Out of, what is it, 168 hours in a seven-day week, we devote 45 minutes to do the church thing to the Lord, to make him happy, to get, off, get him off our back, and then we do what we want for the rest of the time. It's not a good attitude. We miss a whole aspect of Christianity if we're just being content with seeing our brothers and sisters for 45 minutes out of a 168-day or hour week. What we, and I'm not trying to condemn anybody. We cheat ourselves. The book of Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembling of the brethren. We cheat ourselves if we're just consent to see other believers for a small period of time and then be in the world the rest of the week. Cheating ourselves. The third part, here's the, the run-on sentence that I was talking about. Let me just read. I was reading the Living Bible, which kind of puts it together, uh, makes it a little bit more legible, a little bit more digestible. In the Living Bible, verse 3, it says, Paul says, And that you will have the rich experience of knowing Christ with real certainty and clear understanding. For God's secret plan, now at last made known, is Christ himself. In him, in Christ, lie hidden all the mighty, untapped treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I kind of think that puts it together a little easier. But what does this say to you? If you could think of one word that described all that I read. To me, it screams sufficiency, sufficiency in Christ. That's the third step that we're talking about. Do you have sufficiency in your life? 
Do you want sufficiency in your life? I think if I asked for a show of hands, we would all say, yeah, I want, I want sufficiency in my life. Now, understand this was also a refutation of Gnosticism. And the Gnostics came in and spread this heresy that said it was only an elite group that had the treasure of wisdom and knowledge, not all believers. Paul right here is refuting that. That's not true. So these three achievements, their hearts to be encouraged, knit together in love, and sufficiency in Christ would help the Colossians resist false doctrine. And that's a good formula for any church. If we have those three things, that's a good start. We're starting to put the blocks on the foundation. Okay. And Paul also hadn't familial knowledge of the Colossians or the Laodiceans, but his heart was for them. He had an uncanny knack for selflessness as a leader. This is a great rule for ministry. See, Paul was very other-centered. Paul made sacrifice as a minister. Paul always tried to see others' uh, good before he would see his own good. Now, let's make a little bit of a, a comparison This Wednesday, I'm going to be teaching on Judges chapter 9, which is uh, the part of the Old Testament where we read about this character called Abimelech. Most of us just know him. He has a funny name. But Abimelech was one of Gideon's sons. He was a ruthless man. His attitude was, it's my turn to be a leader. I want to be a leader. I have the qualifications to be a leader. And he murdered all his brothers, and then he took over, and he was a bad leader. So you see the difference between Abimelech, whose heart was not for the people, and you see Paul, whose heart was for the people. So you, you, we're learning a lot of lessons about Paul and, and uh, leadership and ministry. Verse 4. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with pervasive, persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and your steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. A lot of of punch there, a lot of meat there. You see this foundation, remember, Jesus is the cornerstone, okay? That cornerstone of the foundation and all the bricks are built around that to make that foundation. You start to see the foundation getting stronger. The foundation had to be strong enough to withstand false teachings that were coming in the church because subtle lies mixed with truth can sound plausible if you're not rooted. Uh, if, you know, see, we live in an age of, and the Bible said it, that the great falling away would happen, uh, good teaching would start to wane, uh, people would start to have itching ears for the teachings that they wanted to hear that fed their own ego, not necessar- necessar- necessarily what the truth is. And we're starting to see that in our time. And we live in an age where church uh, can actually become a, like a revolving door. People come, people go. And what happens is, you know, you pick up stuff from the cable Christian channels, you pick up uh, some magazines, Christian magazines, articles, and there's a lot of heresy really mixed in with that. And you have to be very discerning when you read information that's called Christian, because there's a lot of stuff out there that's geared towards one particular man's peeve or doctrine or or something like that. I want to read you um, an article that was found in uh, June of 2008, It's called the United States Religious Landscape Survey Report. They did a survey and they found that 53% of evangelicals believe there is more than one true way to interpret the teachings of my religion. 57% of evangelicals believe that many religions can lead to eternal life. Pastor Anthony just did uh, uh, the devotion on John 14. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life with the children's ministry servants. Uh, 57% of evangelicals 
don't believe what Jesus said. 83% of mainline Protestants and 79% of Catholics believe that many religions can lead to eternal life. That's frightening, guys. It's frightening. The church is in trouble, especially the Western church. Verse 5. Paul sees their good order and their steadfastness of faith. Now, no doubt that Paul got a good report from Epaphras. We went over who Epaphras was in chapter 1. But he also got insight from the Holy Spirit. And this was a good start. Because if you look at the Corinthian church, they were out of order. (laughs) Paul says, God is the God of order. You guys are out of order. And steadfastness of faith, they had faith in everything but truly what their faith should have been in. So the Corinthian church was a little bit of a mess. And I'm sure Paul was shocked when he got a good report after his rebuking letter that, hey, things are starting to go good. What? So he writes 2 Corinthians saying, hey, I'm glad everything's worked out for you. I'm glad that I had, you know, rebuked you in a sense. But the Colossians here start out pretty good. They have good order and a steadfastness of faith. And in verse 6, he says, you've received Christ, so walk in him. There's a command. There's a behavior issue here. James talks about don't just be a hearer of the word, be a doer also. And we we even spoke about that in Proverbs, right? What I just read, Proverbs 3, the, the transition from believing it in your heart to actually walking in it. And sometimes those two things can be an eternity apart. From, from reception of Christ to walking in Christ can be from the east is to the west. And some people never make that transition. There's a behavior issue here. Many in, in Christianity for, uh, could be in Christianity for decades and never go from the milk to the meat. Maybe exhibiting, exhibiting childish behavior, still walking in the childish things that Paul speaks about. And that's a problem because now when something big comes, like false doctrine or... And I've seen it happen. People get carried away. They get swooped away because they don't have a strong foundation. It's almost like you have a bad immune system and some type of... You know, the funny thing about... um, Or the sad, tragic thing about AIDS is that AIDS doesn't really kill you. What it does is it weakens the immune system so whatever else you catch kills you. Okay, something that anybody that you and I would get can fight off. And this is what happens. Their immune system is weak. They're not walking in Christ. They received Christ, but 10 years, 15, 20 years, could be 40 years go by, and people are still not walking in Christ. And there's a, there's a jump that has to be made there. Verse 7, it says that we need to be rooted and built up in him. Rooted and built up. These are two great emblems in the natural world with spiritual implications. Where is our foundation? Where's our roots? Where's our foundation? Do we have a strong foundation? And I'm going to read what Jesus says about a foundation. The last part here... At the end of the verse, um, verse 6 is, he says, To be established in the faith that you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Almost seems like question mark. What does that have to do with the foundation? Where does the thanksgiving kind of fit in? But if you really think about it, when the roots are strong and the foundation is good, we will abound with with, uh, thanksgiving. Show me a person who's critical who's, who's, um, who's gossipy, who's complaining, who makes excuses for their behavior. And this is a constant, look, we all, get, we all have our down times, okay? But I'm talking about this is a way of life. It's just a miserable person, unthankful, and I'll show you a person who doesn't get it. They're not grounded. Their root systems aren't strong. They're not getting the proper nut- nutrition. So abounding in it with thanksgiving. We will naturally have a thankful heart when we understand these concepts. A big part of our prayer life should be not just, dear Lord, I need a new car, I need this, I need that, amen. 
I mean, a big part of our prayer should, should speak about thanksgiving. Lord, thank you for what you've blessed me with. Thank you that I have everlasting life and everything else is just gravy. I mean, if we really think about everlasting life, something we can earn, something uh, you know, we can never hope to achieve by natural means, uh, that's amazing. And everything else that we get in life is just gravy, isn't it? So what can we learn from the Colossians so far? Rooted, foundation, Look at the leaning tower of Pisa, right? It wasn't a good foundation. It's leaning. It's a great tourist attraction, but it's not a terribly sturdy building. Um, it, you know, you put anything on the floor and it always rolls to one side, right? Uh, the Colossian situation, false teaching. What about our application? You have to understand this. <clears throat> so many fall away or become unstable if the following happens. A great Christian... And listen, it's only a matter of time. We're only human. I, I heard about another one, but... Uh, a great Christian personality, you know, maybe on TV, maybe somebody you know, pastor, whatever, falls into sin, okay? Some people's faith is totally destroyed. I have to tell you, and I don't know how to candy coat this, your focus is not on Christ. There may be an emotional component attached to it, and that's understandable. We all, I have my bad days too. But if we're totally devastated and we walk away from the faith because somebody fell into sin, we don't have the right foundation. And there's just no two ways about that. We need to move on and focus on Jesus Christ. Um, we can fall into all kinds of sins and heresies and problems if we don't have the proper tool to deal with uh, our, our, our issues if we're not rooted and have a proper foundation. Persecution. You know, in our country, we really aren't persecuted. In many other countries, there are persecutions. If our foundation is not strong, let me tell you what's going to happen if persecution comes to the United States. And all of a sudden, the laws change and say it's illegal to proselytize. It's illegal to become a Christian. And many other countries have that. I'll tell you what's going to happen. If we're not rooted, we're all going to secretly go out to our cars and pull all those fish bumper stickers off, aren't we? Because we're not rooted. Well, I don't want persecution. The rules have changed. Well, what's changed? Aren't we rooted in Christ? You see what I'm saying? So if we don't have that proper foundation, it's going to be a problem. Verse 8. Beware, Paul says, lest anyone cheat or rob you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. So now we're going to start testing the strength of this foundation. And Paul's basically saying that if you get verses 9 and 10, if you understand that Jesus, and this is the whole point of this book, if you understand that all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus bodily, and we are complete in Christ, or can be complete or mature in Christ, you won't fall victim to the first verse that he just spoke about. You understand? It's a cause and effect relationship. The first thing, philosophy. The word in the Greek is philosophias, which is literally a transliteration. So pretty much it retained its original form from the Greek and became an English word, philosophy. Love of wisdom, if you parse that word in the Greek, love of wisdom. In the English dictionary, philosophy has more of a plethora of meaning. There's reasoning, there's knowledge, there's the study of human behavior. Unfortunately, though, there's so much philosophy in the world. The Greeks loved philosophy. They would philosophize all day long, if that's a word. Uh, and Paul had to kind of cut through that and say, listen, you know, God, you're not going to get any points to get into heaven because you're an egghead. You know, it's not going to help you out. You know, enough with that. But philosophy, the world is filled with worldly wisdom. 
Some people, and sadly, some Christians can't live without their daily dose of Dr. Phil or Oprah. It's a problem. It really is. It's sad because, you know, I know Oprah kind of got into all this uh, spirituality and she accepts all kinds of spirituality, but it really didn't hit home until I saw a video, a few of them, of her debating Christian women, basically turning her back on her faith that she was brought up in in search of the world's philosophy and wisdom. See, because she needs a big audience. So she's turned her back on Jesus, openly saying that he wasn't the way, the truth, and the life. And it was really cool because this one Christian woman got into it with her and she held her ground very strongly. But I think all, I don't know, maybe it's the millions of dollars that changed her. So certainly the world's wisdom isn't going to do anything for us. So you have philosophy and empty deceit. This is something that promises you something great but has hollow promises. Uh, I've spoke about the secret before. I actually logged on to The Secret on the website. I found out there were 351 million hits to The Secret. People are looking for someone to come into their lives and make their lives better, and I'm going to get into that. And The Secret is, it's touted as this mysterious uh, philosophy that if you start really getting into it, uh, positive confession, it's really also a revamped Gnosticism. If you really get heavy into this, you can be taught how to get anything you want in life. 351 million hits to the secret. It's pretty sad. By the way, Oprah endorses that too. This is why we're never going to grow very big because I don't mind saying these things because they're wrong. I'm going to be a good shepherd like Jesus was. I'm going to model myself after that. Let me clarify that. Jesus is the model. I could never attain that. I just want to make that clear. Um, I'm not going in that direction. But empty deceit, kind of when you order something online that seems to be a great bargain and turns out to be a piece of junk. How many people has that happened to? <laughs> so, you know, in the age of the Internet. So my wife and I decide we're going to have this, do this new hobby. We're kind of earthy, crunchy people, right? I'm really into her gardens now and all. So we decide, or actually she decided, that we're going to raise bees and get natural honey, right? <laughs> I didn't even say anything yet. So I click onto the website Bee Boxes, right? And it shows this, it shows this great thing, you know, the, the hood and the smoker and the hives and the drawer. I don't even know what I'm looking at. And I'm like, it was like under 200 bucks. I'm like, wow, this is a steal. So I order it. It comes in and there's a package on my doorstep, but it's kind of small. And I look at it, I'm like, there's got to be another box. I open it up. There's literally hundreds of pieces in there, little pieces of wood and hundreds of nails that I have to hammer together and put these bee boxes together. And I'm thinking, I could have done that myself. I didn't have to spend all that money for it. But you kind of look at it, and it it was deceitful, right? It really looked good, and they didn't say that it wasn't assembled. Uh, So if one Sunday I come in, it's kind of like one of those bondage commercials, and you see me, I have welts and stingers all over me, you know what happened. (laughs) Empty deceit, in a spiritual sense. Anything that's too good to be true is too good to be true, (laughs) except for salvation. Salvation came free to us. So empty deceit. It's you think you're going after something, be it the secret or some type of esoteric idea to help your life get better, and you kind of get into it and you say, there's a letdown there. Okay? According to the traditions of men, even religions are steeped in tradition, often paying homage to man's ways over God's ways. Let's, um, let's, and I'll just read a few verses. In Mark 7, a few things that Jesus said about traditions of men. A few things, just a snippet here. Jesus says, In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So 
religious people, he's speaking to religious people, religious system, teaching commandments of men, traditions, and all that kind of stuff as doctrines of God. That's a problem, Jesus said. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. Now, the commandments of, of or the traditions of men are coming in contact or opposition to the commandments of God. He says in verse 13, you make the word of God nullified or of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down and many such things you do. So Jesus had a lot of negative things to say about the tradition of men. Well, why do we do it this way in church? Well, because we've always done it that way. Well, that's because that's the, you know, the, the main church says that we should do it this way. Nonsense. If it's not in the scripture, if it's contrary to listen, there's nothing wrong with traditions. There's nothing wrong with cultural things. The only problem is when it comes in direct conflict with God's word, then it becomes a problem. Okay? And according to the basic principles of the world. If it's not of God, it's of the world system by default. See, the Gnostics, the Gnostics taught that you can do it. And, you know, it is good to, to do it yourself. It is good to pick yourself up. But what they taught basically was salvation through intellectualism. Really, pretty much, they took the people away from God and said, you can do it. Humanism, you know, man-centered. We can solve all of our problems. You can do it. Okay? So it was uh, salvation through intellectualism. And in verse 8, going back to that, Paul said, let no one cheat you or let no one plunder you. You're going to get ripped off if you're shown any other way to salvation other than the cross, because they'll be antagonistic to the cross. Verse 9, he says, For in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And there's no wiggle room in that translation. Uh, from the original Greek, uh, we see it's uh, theotetos somatikos. And if you break it down, it's basically the fullness of the Godhead. Why is that important? Because some will come to you and say to you, um, Jesus never claimed to be God, or the Bible doesn't say that Jesus was divine. Well, all they need to get is a good dose of Colossians, because all throughout this book, we see the divinity of Christ. In verse 10, you are complete in him. Last Sunday, Paul spoke about, or we spoke about, the Apostle Paul, who strived and labored to present all believers mature as a pastor from a shepherd's point of view. But here, you are complete in him. Speak to you, I speak to me. Paul's speaking to all of us as Christians. You are complete in him. And along with verse 6, which says, you received Christ, so walk in him, what we see here is personal responsibility. So Paul had his responsibility in doing the right thing for those that God has entrusted him to. He said, God has made me an overseer of you. God has made me a minister to you, to teach you, and to shepherd you. But now, don't forget that the sheep also have a responsibility. Okay? We have personal responsibility. Let's just talk a little bit about personal responsibility in America. There was a story about a man who had too much to drink, was driving drunk, got pulled over by the police, got arrested, was convicted, lost his license, had a very lucrative job. So he lost his job. He couldn't drive. So instead of taking personal responsibility, he sued the police department for lost wages. <laughs> I, I lost millions of dollars. It's your fault. Sued the bar. Sues everybody. You should sue himself. You know? Personal responsibility, the world doesn't understand it anymore. We have to sue everybody. And there are good, legitimate civil lawsuits, but you're going to wait a long time because all the junk that's clogging our, our court systems. But what about Christians? Let's get a little bit personal here as Christians. Who do we blame for the problems in our life? Christians. You'd be surprised how many Christians blame God. He's the easy fall guy. It's God's fault. He didn't bless me. He could have healed me. He could have done this. He could have done that. 
And they, well, I'm a Christian, but it's almost like they hold a grudge and a bitterness towards God. A little double-mindedness there. Um, your pastor, <laughs> that's very self-serving, isn't it? Blame my pastor for all my problems. It's my, it's my church's problem, my church's fault, that I am the way I am, that this happened. Let's get a little closer to home now. <laughs> spouse. Well, I, I, I would be a good Christian if it wasn't for my spouse. They're always holding me down. So basically, you should go down to that level because your spouse is at that level. You know, married couples sometimes you know, do a lot of counseling. You made me do this. <laughs> I wouldn't have done this, but you pushed my buttons and you made me do this. My pastor used to say, don't have buttons to push. We all have those buttons, don't we? And then we get really close to somebody, they learn our buttons, and we push each other's buttons, right? Um, your kids, you know? I wouldn't be so stressed out. I wouldn't be this and I wouldn't be that if it wasn't for my rotten kids. It's their fault. So even as Christians, we can, we can blame others for the problems in our life, right? It's my upbringing. Right. <laughs> now let's look at Adam and Eve. They had the perfect God. They had the perfect parent. They had the perfect spouses. There was no sin yet. They had the perfect environment. Everything was perfect. And they still made a mess of their lives, didn't they? Right? So we need to take personal responsibility as Christians and lead the world by example. If I can wrap up this section, again, it's the sufficiency of Christ is written all over this. All right? It's sad that many Christians are seeking what the world has to offer after tasting of Jesus. And I call it, I like that word, the wanderlust. Our eyes are always somewhere else. God has blessed me. Look at my blessings. But that neighbor has a bigger house. That neighbor has an in-ground pool. That neighbor has a new vehicle. That neighbor has a better spouse. We're always looking somewhere else, aren't we? And what it is is we're not seeing that God has given us, his blessings are good, and he's made us sufficient, but we're not realizing it. Even in marriages, you know, looking outside of marriage, looking at whatever it may be, because, you know, you're always, it's that wanderlust. We need to get this point. Jesus is our source of life and joy. Our road to completeness is right here. It's right under our noses. Now, I'll give you an example. Um, I love mangoes, and my wife buys me these. I love mangoes. And they're nice and ripe. They're really good. And uh, she bought me a, a little crate of mangoes, and they were in the kitchen. And I'm used to seeing the crate. So there was like two left, and I didn't realize that she took the two out and put them in a basket on the plant holder. So one day I wake up. I don't see the, the crate. I'm looking all over. I mean, it was right in front of my face. Baby, where's the mangoes? She goes, they're in the basket on top of the plant holder. And I looked, and I was just about to say, they're not. And I looked, and they were. They were right in front of me. Just like the mangoes were right under my noses. Guys, <laughs> it's true. What we don't realize is what we should realize is everything we need is not right here in this church. It's not right here as me as the pastor. It's right here in this book, The Sufficiency of Christ. And sometimes, I want to encourage you. I'm not trying to you know, beat anybody down, but I want to encourage you that Let's start looking right in front of our face for what is going to make us complete and sufficient. Because there are many of us who are looking here and looking there and looking all over when we should be looking right here. And sometimes, see, I learned a lot about meditation when I, when I prepared for this. Even Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, I've read that a million times. But it wasn't until I really meditated on what those words meant did I really understand that proverb. And it's not until we really, and even Colossians, I've read this book a whole bunch of times, and it's not until now, until I've studied this book, am I really trying to understand or am I really understanding the sufficiency in Christ? And that's why the Bible says to meditate. 
I used to not understand that word. It's not memorization necessarily, rote memorization, but it's, it's meditating it. You, you, you mull it over and you ask the Lord, what does this mean? And you, you take it apart and God says, this is what I intended it to mean. Okay? So meditation is very important. Verse 11, last few verses here uh, for today. It says, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them in it. Two images that Jesus uses uh, to help us to get a, a better understanding, or what Paul uses, is one is circumcision, the other one's baptism. Well, circumcision physically, God gave the covenant to the children of Israel. There was redundant tissue around the penis that they had to circumscribe, um, circumcise, and it was useless flesh, and they got rid of it. Now, spiritual circumcision or circumcision made without hands is basically you're taking that redundant, useless tissue and you're discarding it. In a spiritual sense, what it means is you're taking this, the flesh, the carnal nature, and you're discarding it. It's easier said than done, isn't it? It would be great if we could just, and our sinful nature is gone. Like I said before, Lord, take your free will. You can have it back. I want to work, walk in the light all the time. would be great, wouldn't it? But, but by dying on the cross, again, it's something we have to meditate and realize in our hearts. By dying on the cross, Jesus gave us the power to prevail over evil and to cast away that power of the sinful flesh and our carnal nature. He gave us that power, that spiritual circumcision. And now he goes from circumcision to baptism. <laughs> we get circumcised, now we're dunked. What's going on here? In baptism, we identify with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Another picture. Part of identifying with Jesus is to understand that we were raised in a new nature. When we come up out of the water, that's what it's symbolizing. We, were raised, we died to our sins, and we are raised in newness of life, and we have a new nature. And that resurrected power gives us the power over the old sinful nature as a result of Jesus' finished work on the cross. So you have those two images there. In verse 13, he speaks about being dead to alive. He's speaking about being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. Before the cross, we're dead in our sins and our trespasses. We're not children of the light. We don't understand spiritual matters as, as much as we philosophize. It's only until we become born again, which is spoken about in John chapter 3, and 1 Peter chapter 1, do we become spiritually revived and awakened and quickened, so to speak. And verse 14, he speaks about the, um, the freeing power of Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, and how it freed us. Now, we are free to live and die without condemnation, but we're also free to live a life that's pleasing to God. And I keep reiterating that subject. This isn't an infomercial or a pep rally, but I'm not going to tell you that... that that no matter how, how devoted you are to the Lord, that all your circumstances are going to go away because our life is surrounded by circumstances. Every time we get up in the morning, we don't know what awaits us. We don't have control over what other people do to us or, or natural disasters or all that kind of stuff. But I am saying that you have the power to change your life. You have the power to have joy. 
I meet unbelievers who have been through horrific experiences who have sometimes a lot more joy than I see some Christians have. And they don't have the Lord. That's pretty impressive. And it's kind of, uh, uh, it's kind of an interesting object lesson to us. So the question is, where is our foundation and what is it built with? A few quick scriptures as we close. Isaiah 44, 8. Isaiah says, uh, speaking, or God speaking, he says, You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Is there? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. So God is the only rock. Psalm 1831, building a case here. Psalm 1831. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? Exclusivity here. Psalm 118.22. This is a prophecy of the Messiah. The stone or the rock which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. In him, Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I would never come up here and say, I'm the judge or I'm the rock or I am the I am. I would not want to stand next to somebody who made those comments. Jesus took all the titles and all the emblems that, that God the Father had for himself. He's either a thief or he is really who he said he was. So here's a picture of the future, Psalm 18, of the future where the builders, the religious leaders who were supposed to be building the religious system and, and the spiritual system of Israel have rejected the chief cornerstone. One more. Matthew 7:24, and most of you are familiar with this one. Jesus says this, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who has built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Now everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was that fall. How tragic. It's a tragic situation. So where do we put our treasures? Who are we going to throw our weight behind? Is it some religious leader? Some great Christian personality? Is it going to be the next president? So many people in this world are so desperate that they're putting all their eggs. Boy, I wouldn't want to be one of the candidates because they're expecting either Obama or McCain to get in there and make their lives great. It ain't going to happen. They're going to promise you the world. But once they get in, they're going to find out it's just a machine. And one man can't do very, an easy job of turning the wheels of that machine that runs our government. So if that's what you're looking for, forget about it. Where's your foundation? The Laodiceans, what's really sad is they eventually blew it. They failed. So much so that Jesus had to rebuke them in Revelation chapter 3 for their failures. We all have the choice, everyone sitting here, to build our foundation on the rock or on the sand. But I would say this, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray.